Good morning. Is my mic on? Okay, good. Um, so this is, uh, I have a couple of confessions to make too, really. Um, first of all, this is uh, my first time to ever preach where people are relying on me to give them things to put in the blanks. So at the end, <laughs> thank you for laughing. Um, at the end of the, um, at the end of the service, if for some reason you don't have any blanks filled in, it's probably not your fault. It's probably mine. And if it's driving you nuts, I'll be up here. You can come and I, and I will give you all of them. All right. So no one get mad. All will be well. Jesus is King. Um, so, and then the second thing is this, you are going to, we're going to walk through these notes twice. So if in 15 minutes, we're like, wow, this is the shortest sermon they've ever heard. Um, rest assured, we're going to go through it again. Be blessed. All right. Um, so 2 Samuel chapter 9 is where we're going to be. And we're going to be having a conversation about the table. Um, and, and I'll be honest, I'm doing everything I can during the worship to let my voice rest. because This is the first time I've ever preached two sermons back to back. And the worship team would not let me just rest. Because, man, isn't, isn't our music just fantastic? Um, it's, just, it's, it's just good. Anyway. So uh, we're going to be discussing uh, who dines at the table. So let me ask you a question before we dive into this text. Who dines at your table? Recently coming out of Thanksgiving, you have probably extended family around your table, right? I mean, you've got a little bit of everybody with some people that you probably didn't expect to be there show up as well, maybe. And, and, and that's an, a happy time, a good time of Thanksgiving, right? But at the same time, there's, a, there's an even sweeter time that we find around a table. And it's the times that you sit down with your family every night and you begin to discuss things that happen throughout your day. It's a time of, of intimate fellowship, isn't it? I mean, really no one else is invited to those family meals. There are times for you to sit down, to love your family, and to have conversation, hopefully, over well-prepared food. And, man, it's just, it's just the sweetest thing. I, I cherish the times that I'm able to sit down with my family and be able to, to discuss whatever's going on in those lives, to celebrate with each other, to also, go, when we go through tragedy, to, to be able to express those feelings together. When I was a kid, we used to do something called best thing, worst thing. And we would talk, hey, what's the best thing that happened to your day? What's the worst thing that happened to your day? And, and just looking at this, we, we're going we're gonna to look at a young man who was given a seat at a table that he never should be at. We're going to look at a young man named Mephibosheth. So if you have your Bible, 2 Samuel chapter 9, verses 1 through 13 is where we will be. Uh, if you are physically able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1 says this. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Emil, at Lodabar. Then king David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Emil, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David quickly said, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? 
Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at the king's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for your word. And Lord, as we come this morning, we come trusting in it. We come trusting that your word, along with your spirit, will lead us into all truth. And, and Father, we're just grateful for the fact that you have revealed yourself to us, Father. For apart from grace, we would not know you. And so, Father, as we study your word, would you enlighten us? Would you illuminate your word for us that we might make much of Jesus and celebrate who he is and what he has accomplished for us? And God, may we, as we leave this place, glorify you because of the proclamation of your word. So, Father, I come as a weak servant, and I confess my weakness that, I, that your power may rest upon me. And so, Father, would you, by your grace, speak to us this morning. It is in the name of Christ, and through his precious blood we pray. Amen. So, 2 Samuel chapter 9 is a really interesting passage. I love this young man named Mephibosheth. He's an interesting character, one that I find uh, a, great, a great mirror to, I guess, for, for myself. When I look at Mephibosheth, it, it's easy for me to see myself in him. But so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to walk through this story and we're going to identify a couple of things that we can find here. And then we're going to walk back through them again. And I want to show you some things in light of the New Testament. So uh, starting in verse 1, it says this, And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, before we dive into this passage, it's important to know some of the things that have happened in David's life in recent days. David has recently heard news of the death of Saul, the king, and his best friend, Jonathan. And now, I'm sure that David probably had some mixed feelings, seeing that Saul had greatly persecuted David and desired him to be put to the spear multiple times, throwing it himself. And then, at the exact same time, he knows that Saul is the king of Israel, that multiple times David himself spares Saul. And then, when he hears about his best friend Jonathan's death, I mean, when you think about any relationship we can find in the Scriptures, I would argue there is no greater friendship found than in the relationship between David and Jonathan. They loved each other dearly. You can see multiple times in the scripture that David loved him as his own soul. And we even see the Lord say that their souls were knit together. I mean, deep friendship. And so that's happened in David's life. And briefly after that, David sieges the city of Jerusalem and takes it. Now he is in in Jerusalem, essentially sitting on the throne. All Israel is recognizing him as king. And what do you think the first decree of the king might be? I mean, really, it could be anything. He can do whatever he wants. But instead, what we see in verse 1, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Not something that you would normally expect a king to do as his first major act, is it? Now, what's interesting about this is this is completely unprovoked. This is starting with David. The one who he's going to show kindness to didn't approach him and say, hey, because you loved my dad and because you made a covenant with my granddad, will you please show me some kindness? No, Mephibosheth, the man we're going to look at in just, a, in just a minute, did not do that at all. Instead, he was hiding out somewhere, expecting no kindness from the king. But we see David, because of his great love for Jonathan, began to seek out one that he might show kindness to. This is uncharacteristic of a king, really. 
Why couldn't he just, I mean, especially as the first act, why couldn't he just sit and stay and, and enjoy just for a moment? I mean, think about the things David's been through. Why not sit on your throne and chill for a minute, man? But instead, what he's doing, he immediately wants to go and so, show some great kindness for the sake of his friend Jonathan. And so it's very important that we see here that David is the initiator of this relationship. And apart from David's initiation, this would never happen. Never would Mephibosheth receive the blessings that he was going to receive. Secondly, we see that he not only initiates that relationship, but he makes sure that it's carried through. Look at verse 5. Then King David sent and brought him. Sent and brought him. Why couldn't David, the king, simply send a messenger and say, hey, you should probably come to Jerusalem. I'd like to have a couple of words with you. Instead, he sends people to go and get this young man and bring him. I mean, anything that, that David could do for kindness, I mean, he could have simply invited him to Jerusalem and say, hey, man, why don't you come and why don't you dwell here in this city and, and, and just enjoy what we've, what, we've, what we've gotten? That would have been a kindness, wouldn't it? Would he really have needed to go any further? Certainly he wouldn't have needed to go and to get this young man and bring him by a king's caravan, perhaps, to come and, and meet with David. This kindness was completely and totally initiated by this king, David. Not only was it initiated, it was carried through. So the first point is the king sought out one to show kindness to. Secondly, the one found was an unworthy recipient. Now let me explain to you why this young man was so unworthy. Because he has, I mean, he's three strikes, you're out kind of thing. He has absolutely no right for David to show any kindness to him at all. So let's look, first of all, of the fact that he was of a former kingdom. David was of, I mean, Mephibosheth, who was his dad? Jonathan. Who was his grandfather? Saul. Saul, the man who had gone above and beyond to seek out David to kill him. Not only that, what would normally happen in this day when a new king took the throne, he would almost immediately begin to seek out anyone who had claim over the throne and put them to the sword to make sure that no one had any claim over that throne except for him and his line. You see, it really makes sense if, if we just look at the first part of verse 1. Is there still anyone of the house of Saul? This would be a normal thing for the king to say so that he might seek them out and put them to death. Make sure that his throne is established and clean and clear. No one had claim except for David and his sons. But instead we see him uh, go and get this guy, bring him to himself. And so for one reason, this, this whole thing of him being brought should... I wonder if Mephibosheth even thought that maybe he was being brought to his execution. Secondly, we see this. Mephibosheth was lame. Look at verse, um, verse 3. At the end of verse 3, it says this, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. Now, perhaps you're wondering why in the world that would matter. Why would it matter that he was lame? Well, if you turn back to 2 Samuel chapter 5, you'll see a very interesting story. This is the story where David sieges Jerusalem, and he takes it. But because the king that is currently in Jerusalem thinks he is so safe and secure behind his walls, he did not feel the need to place soldiers or archers or something like that to ward off the enemy. Instead, what he does is this. Look at verse 6. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion. That is the city of David. And David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who were hated of David's soul. So let me explain what we have so far. We have a young man named Mephibosheth who's of a former line and should be, by tradition, put to death to establish David's throne forever. He's drug in, essentially, into the throne room. And David 
aware that he, they will bring in a lame man, looks at one who every time he sees them looks up at, and remembers at the walls of Jerusalem that they mocked him from the walls and said, I'm not very concerned about you. You're not getting in. And can you imagine every time he saw Mephibosheth or frankly any lame man, he saw the people mocking him, the king of Israel. And so the lame man comes in, one who was hated of David's soul. Have you ever heard such strong language? Hated of David's soul. There was a deep rooted hatred that David had for the lame. Even to the point where in, uh, in the same verse it says they should not come into the house, speaking of the tabernacle and the temple. Don't let them in. I mean, David's hatred was something fierce. And so we see that he's of a former kingdom. Secondly, we see that he's lame. And the next thing we can find is in Mephibosheth's name. Mephibosheth's name actually is, a, is changed in 2 Samuel because Samuel wasn't a huge fan of writing the name of Baal. And so what he did instead was write Mephibosh. Bosh means shame in Hebrew. And so what we have here is one of a former kingdom, one who is lame, which is a prejudice that David had. And, se- and thirdly, one who was an idolater and very, very likely a worshiper of Baal. So before, let's just look at this for a moment. We have the king of Israel, one who was a God-fearer, one who has just taken the throne and probably desires for it to be forever established as it's been promised to him. And so he looks at this young man. And I wonder if the reasons began to run through his mind why he should put him to the sword. I mean, he has plenty, doesn't he? Why not? Why not kill him? You see, Mephibosheth was a completely unworthy recipient. But the king shows an unworthy man kindness due to the unmatched worth of another. So you will find in verse Pardon me, seven. And David said, do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. Can we take a minute and just kind of back up? Because a lot of times when we look at the scriptures, we don't ever allow ourselves to feel what the people are feeling. We, we, we look at it just as a historical document and we never realize that it's actual people. Can you imagine just for a minute Mephibosheth as he's brought into the king's throne room, as he's placed down completely incapable of carrying himself anywhere and begins to pay homage to this great king. As he places his face down on the ground and and pays homage and says, I am your servant. Can you imagine the fear that ran through his mind? Thinking, I am a lame man. I know that this king hates them. Thinking, he has every right to kill me. And normally he definitely would because that would establish his throne forever. There'd be no one to have claim over it except for him and and his children. And lastly, I'm an idolater. This man fears the one true God, and I have worshipped Baal. I wonder if Mephibosheth ever thought that he might rise from that prostrate position. Do you think he did? But then he heard these words, and they're the sweetest of words. And and all throughout the scriptures, we see God speak to his people like this. He mentions them by name. We see him call Abraham by name. We see him say to uh, Moses from the burning bush, Moses, Moses. All throughout the scriptures, we see God call people by name. And David, much uh, much like God says, Mephibosheth. And I wonder if Mephibosheth heard the kindness coming off those words. If he began to consider, perhaps he will spare me. And then he says this. David says, do not fear. What a beautiful command to one who is shaking in fear that he might never rise. And so he hears this command from the king, do not fear. And then he hears this, and I think it's in these words that he, he realizes, I'm safe. 
And it's only in these words where he realizes I'm safe because do not fear could mean many of things. Perhaps maybe that he's not going to die right there, that he might simply imprison him. But no, when he hears these words, I think this is where you have Mephibosheth realize what's happening. And you hear this. I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. So Mephibosheth in his mind, I'm sure, is considering, wow, I have gone from thinking I'm going to perish to all of a sudden being shown great kindness from the king of Israel. Kindness that I should never be shown. And it's nothing to do with me at all. There's nothing that I've done. If we were to take my record and place it before the king, he'd put me to the sword right now, and justfully so. But instead we see because of my dad, because of everything that he did for, with, with David, because David loved him as his own soul, because after the, the battle between David and Goliath, instead of being jealous as Saul was, Jonathan clothed David with his own royal robe. You see, when David looks at Mephibosheth, he sees quite clearly the features that he would have seen on Jonathan. Perhaps when he looked into his eyes, he would have seen that caring heart through them. Perhaps even as Mephibosheth says, I am your servant, perhaps he heard the same tone of Jonathan, the tone that he loved. And perhaps as as he stared at Mephibosheth, he might have seen the lame. He may have seen the fact that he was an idolater, but more than anything else, he saw his friend Jonathan. And there we have a unworthy recipient being granted great kindness for the unmatched worth of another. But what kindness was he shown? Because the great kindness was, was exceedingly more than necessary. I mean, there was a covenant made between David and Saul previously, and ultimately that covenant was simply, hey, be kind to my, uh, my heirs. Be, make sure you don't wipe them out, ultimately, was the, command that, was the argument that Saul made with David. The covenant made. All he had to do was make sure that Mephibosheth didn't die, essentially. He just wanted to be, just make sure that his line was established and not taken out. But instead, we see something far greater. Let's look at what we can find here in verse 7. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. So ultimately, the inheritance that would have been Mephibosheth was restored to him. You see, when David took the throne, he had right over all things that the, the former king had. He could have taken all of Saul's land, done with it whatever he chose. But instead of what, instead of hoarding it for himself, he instead decides to be kind to this young man for the sake of his father, Jonathan. And he grants him far more than what he needed to. He makes sure that he has an inheritance. He makes sure that he's able to sustain himself, that he'll have land to farm. And not only that, you'll see in the same passage that Mephibosheth has a son named Micah, that Micah might have an inheritance. And you see by David blessing Mephibosheth, he continues to bless the line of Saul and Jonathan. You see, his kindness was far more than necessary. Secondly, we'll see this. Listen to this. So we see him give him, I will restore to you all the land of your Saul, of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. Remember the question, who dines at your table? Would you allow someone that, I mean, you can list ways that they would be despised, dine at your table And if you look at it, this is not like, hey, come for Thanksgiving. This is, hey, I want you to sit down with me at dinner every meal, and I want to have fellowship with you. I want to talk with you, and I want to have an intimate relationship with you. That's the kind of relationship that we're talking about. This is not a light invitation. This is a huge invitation. This invitation not only allows him to have a meal on the table every time he sits down, it allows him to have an audience with the king every single day. Secondly, it elevates his social position, doesn't it? He went, he, as he came in, he was laid low. 
a lame beggar hiding out because he was afraid David might find him. And when he's brought in, he is not only picked up off the ground, but he's given a seat at the king's table. What grace. But you know what's interesting about Mephibosheth? Not only was he given a seat at his table, listen to the language that we see further down. We'll see this, that he was treated as a king's son. Listen to this, in verse, bottom of verse 11 it says, So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. You know, I wonder as people saw Mephibosheth if they thought he's like one of the king's sons. Perhaps he began to have an identity as one who dwelt with the king. Now, he was never actually a son. He was never adopted, I think, probably to preserve the line of Saul. But nonetheless, when he was seen, he was identified as one of the king's sons. But I want to show you one more thing, and I think this is important. In verse 13, we'll see this. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. See, Mephibosheth was shown great kindness. He was elevated from a low position. He was brought into the king's home. He was able to dwell with him forever. But there was still one thing that simply could not be changed. He was still lame in his feet. And I still wonder, perhaps, even in David's kindness, if he looked at Mephibosheth from time to time and still saw those people mocking him from Jerusalem's walls. It still maybe haunted David. But one of the things that I, I love about this passage is you see immediately following this is, 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 as Mephibosheth experiences this kindness, what it actually does in him. Because I can think of many, and arguably I can say that there have been times in my life where someone gives me a great honor and immediately I think to myself, I'm pretty great. You ever been there? Like you get an award and you're like, man, absolutely, I, I worked real hard for this. But we, instead what we see from Mephibosheth is something completely different. What he realizes because of the kindness is his true position. Look at verse 8. Uh, Mephibosheth, and he paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? See, Mephibosheth did not all of a sudden, because of the gifts that he was given, the kindness that he was shown, realize, man, I am, I, of course I'm worthy of this. And he began to boast in himself. No, instead he looked at this and he has a, a deeper understanding of who he is. He is certain that there's absolutely nothing that he deserved from anything, from any kindness from David. And he realized, I'm a dead dog. And apart from the grace and kindness of the king, I would still be hiding out, worshiping a false god in Lodabar. Nobody wants to be in Lodabar. I mean, think about this. You've been invited to, the, to Jerusalem. You've been able to dwell with the king. You've been sitting at his table, and you're still realizing, man, I am, I am low. But man, what grace do we see here from David? When we look at this, I mean, I, as I look at this passage, it's so easy for me to identify myself with Mephibosheth because I'm certain of one thing. Apart from the grace of Christ, I would be hiding out an idolater deserving of death. And as we go back through this the second time, I want to show you some very, very close similarities that we can find in the New Testament. So jumping back up to the top of this, you will discover that this passage is not just about Mephibosheth and David. You see, I am certain that the entirety of Scripture points to Christ. There is not a single passage that excludes him. It is found in all of this. The whole story of Scripture points us to the cross of Christ and leads into him returning again to rescue and redeem his bride. And so here we are, 
looking at Mephibosheth, and I would argue that we can find great things that God has done through Christ for us. We see in Jonathan how he has uh, been, our, been our mediator, been our representative. And so let's jump back up to the top, and I want to show you these four things that we can find. First of all, the king sought out one to show kindness to. God is the grand initiator of all things. There's not a single thing under the sun that God did not begin, whether that be found in creation or in salvation. And, and no matter where you look, if it be in Genesis chapter 1 where he creates, or even in Genesis chapter 3 after the fall, when Adam and Eve rebel against God, who is it that, that begins to seek out reconciliation? Was it Adam and Eve? No, what were they doing? They were hiding in a bush. And by God's grace, he comes down to walk in the cool of day, as was his custom, and he proclaims this lovely phrase, where are you? Isn't that sweet? Where are you? And that same proclamation has been going out since that day. Where are you? And so what we find here is that God is the grand initiator. Just like David sought out Mephibosheth, God has been actively seeking out those who would place their faith in him and be saved. Now he does that through various ways. If you look at this, David sends someone out. And let me explain to you real quickly, God has done it the same way. David, God has sent people out. Who has he sent out? His church. He has sent out his church to be the ones who cry out, where are you? And friends, what a grand invitation we have is God is the grand initiator of our salvation. We should be the ones who God has equipped and has equipped to continue to go out and make that same cry, where are you? And offer them the great grace that can be found in Christ. Secondly, you will discover and that one, that one was found was an unworthy recipient. My goodness, I don't think I can ever explain to you how unworthy we are of God's grace. The other night, I was laying in, in my bed, and I don't sleep. I just kind of lay there. I don't know. Um, and, and eventually, my mind wears itself out. But I'm laying there, and I'm thinking, why me, man? God, why in the world would you rescue me? And I think of, as Paul says, wretched man that I am. Who can save me from this body of death? I mean, that's exactly how I feel. Like, I'm absolutely corrupt. That there is no area of my life that is not corrupted by sin. That I deserve death. I deserve nothing more than the swift hand of justice from God. And the one that he has stumbled upon, the one that he has found intentionally, is this unworthy recipient. First of all, I am of a former kingdom. You see, in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve rebel against God, have you ever noticed that really what they're doing is siding with his enemy? It's not just a, well, we're just not going to go with you said. It's, I'm going to, you know, I kind of like what he's saying. Let's do that. That's what we're seeing in the scripture. There's, there's no riding the fence. There's no simply rebelling against God and, and not siding with the enemy. That's exactly what we see happen. They side with the enemy. And Ephesians chapter 2 confirms this, that we followed after the prince of the power of the air. Who is that? The enemy. We are of another kingdom. We're of another kingdom. And so what, what God has to do is essentially rescue us from a former kingdom to bring us back into a better kingdom. Secondly, we are lame in the worst possible ways. You list it. There is not an area of our life that we are not crippled. I think of Romans chapter 3. And it, Paul makes an argument. He literally argues from the head of man to the foot. There's no one who does good, no, not one. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. And then we see him begin to explain that their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. 
The venom of vipers is under their lips. In their mouths are curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their path is ruin of misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Sweet friends, from head to foot. There's no area of our life that we are not corrupted by sin. We are crippled in the worst possible way. We are crippled by that which God hates. We are crippled by sin. And as God looks at us, I wonder if he sees, as, as Roman, in uh, Psalm chapter 5, that he abhors all those who do evil. And so I lay in my bed and I think, I do evil. I make a practice of it in my day-to-day life. So he takes and finds an unworthy recipient, one of a former kingdom, one who is lame, and lastly, one who is certainly an idolater. How often do we bow our faces before things that are fabricated by human hands or certainly fabricated by our hearts? I forget who said it. The human heart is an idol factory. And friends, I can't think of one thing that I have not at one time or another bowed my face before in spite of my God. And so as I think of the unworthy recipient here, I look at Mephibosheth and I think, man, it must have been easy for David to forgive Mephibosheth because I consider how Christ has forgiven me and how wretched I am and how unworthy of a recipient I am in light of the perfect holiness of God. And instead, I am not granted a speedy execution. I am granted great kindness and it baffles me. But instead, what I find, instead of looking at myself, I'm encouraged not to look at who I am, but to look at who Christ is. And so the king shows an unworthy man kindness due to the unmatched worth of another. And who is this man? What has he accomplished? It is Jesus. And it is in the person of Jesus, it is in his cross and in his life where he lived a perfect sinless life, free from any disobedience, free from any stain or wrinkle or any such thing. He was perfect, flawless, and blameless. And he was crucified... And at that time, God nailed my debt, my sin to the cross and set me free forevermore. And so when I look to this great king and I think of how unworthy I am, I met only with the picture of the cross and said, forgiven. Praise be to God that I am an unworthy man because because of my unworth, I'm able to look at a matchless savior and enjoy him. I have been shown unmatched kindness. Kindness that was exceedingly more than necessary. Friends, wouldn't it be enough if he just spared our lives? I mean, if you just think about all the things, I mean, when I consider, when I consider the tragedy of hell, perhaps God's kindness could have simply been to annihilate me and I would have been good with that. And what great kindness that would have been. But God's justice wouldn't allow it because he is perfect and holy and he will be just. But what beauty is that his justice was perfectly executed at the cross of Christ. His justice is satisfied. My sin has been paid for. But the far past that, Jesus' righteousness has been credited to my account. And because God is faithful and he rewards those who do good, And because I bear in me the righteousness of Christ, that he's imputed that, that he's given that to me, he's credited that to my account, that he must then show exceeding kindness toward me. And what kindness do we see? We can see it line up to some degree with what kindness David showed Mephibosheth. First of all, that he gives us an inheritance. 
I mean, think about this. Mephibosheth had no inheritance. There was nothing for him to give to his children or for him to enjoy. And all of a sudden you have him given all the land of the former king. You would have to imagine this was probably an exceedingly great inheritance, wouldn't you? This was not a light inheritance. This was, this was wealth. And so what we find here is a great inheritance given. And I love what 1 Peter says. It is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Isn't that good that our inheritance is safe and secure? That God has granted us the inheritance that Christ earned, and it is safe and secure, and we will enjoy it forever with him. Secondly, we have been given a seat at his table. We've been given a seat at his table. Now listen to this. I want to show you this because this is important. We have a better table in Christ. The table that Mephibosheth ate at was fantastic, and Mephibosheth, I am most certain, celebrated it all his days, even to the point where eventually some drama happens within David's family, and Mephibosheth has to stay behind, and he refuses to even care for himself until the king returns. And so Mephibosheth rejoiced in this. It was a great table. It is not worthy to be compared to the table that we will have. You see, first of all, as we see at the very end of this passage in verse 13, it says, So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now listen to this. Now he was lame in both his feet. David offered him much. Eat at my table. Act, be like one of my sons. Keep your inheritance. I can't do anything about your lameness. I don't have the power to do that. You see, friends, at Jesus' table, we are not left lame. The sin that corrupted us will no longer be there. I love looking at the three characteristics of our salvation. We have justification where God rescues us from the penalty of sin. No longer will we have to pay the debt for our sin because Christ paid it in full. Secondly, we are sanctified. We are freed from the power of sin day by day by the Holy Spirit of God. Lastly, we are glorified and we are forever set free from the presence of sin. It will no longer be near us. You see, when, I, when we look at this and we say we are not left lame, we are not left lame because Christ will not allow the lame into his presence without being healed. And when I consider the fact that at this table, there will not be one who sits there that will not celebrate the fact that Christ has set us free from that which shackled us for so long. That not only has he set us free from it, we don't even have to consider it or deal with it any longer. It has no place at his table Secondly, we are not as sons and daughters. See, Mephibosheth was never adopted into David's family. He was never brought into the fold. He was treated as one of the king's sons, but never bore his name. In the exact same way, sweet friends, we are not as sons and daughters. No, we are sons and daughters. Scripture speaks very clearly to this. See what kind of love the Father has given us that we might be called children of God? Or we have not received the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but the spirit of adoption by which we cry, Abba, Father. You see, sweet friends, you are not like a son or daughter if you be in Christ. You are a son and daughter. We forget this doctrine. It's foolish that we do because it is such a sweet one. We are sons and daughters of the great king, that we bear his name, that we are marked by his characteristics. Lastly, and perhaps most sweetly, all throughout chapter 9, we see David promise that Mephibosheth will eat at his table all his days. Always. That's all David can promise. All his days. Mephibosheth's days, though, are limited, right? Because he will die like any man. But when we see 
Christ promised that you will dine at my table always. He is not promising that you might dine at his table for a brief period of time, for an average lifespan of, what, 70, 80 years. He's saying, you will dine at my table always. From this point forward, you will have intimate fellowship with me, and I have secured this. I am the sovereign God, and I have decreed that you will dine at my table always. So, sweet friends, we will forevermore dine at the king's table, healed as a son and daughter, and we will enjoy him forevermore. Isn't that a sweet truth this morning? When we consider the fact that where, where we began was one who was far from God, essentially exiled, deserving of nothing more than death, and now you dine at his table and he will not let you leave. Now here's the question. What do we do with this? What do we do with this? How, we've, how we went from a dead dog to a king's son. First of all, since we have been invited to the king's table, let us enjoy each intimate meal. One of the beauties of this table is it does not start necessarily after you die or Christ returns. You see, friends, we're afforded the opportunity to enjoy sweet and intimate fellowship with our Savior at any given moment because he has invited us to dwell with him. He's invited us to communicate with him day in and day out. And we have the grand opportunity of open, opening up the revelation that he's given that we might know him more intimately here and now. Secondly, he gives us the grand privilege of having conversation with him, intimate conversation, the same as you would with your family when you dine around your dinner table. Able to make requests to the king isn't the sweetest thing that... As you dine at the king's table, you are always in his presence and you are forever granted access to request things from him. Enjoy each intimate meal. Lastly, let us invite others to, do the, to dine with us. One of the, my favorite restaurants in Memphis um, is Rendezvous. If you want to fight with me about barbecue, we can talk about it later. Um, <clears throat> But if someone is coming to Olive Branch or Memphis, I will drag them there. Like, you're coming with me, probably really because I want to eat. Um, but isn't it interesting that we do that? We love for people to dine at the restaurants we enjoy. Friends, let me tell you something. God has granted you a great table, and he has granted you a great message. And your obligation as one who has tasted and seen that the Lord is good your obligation is one who is the son of a king and has been offered an opportunity to invite others to become sons and daughters as well is to invite them to dine at the table that you've been brought into. And my sweet friends, I think the primary reason that we are slow to do this is because we rarely stop and enjoy it ourselves. I am one who absolutely has to have a target, something to run after and something to enjoy for, to motivate me, frankly, to do anything. But friends, Look at the table we've been given. It has been set and it has been purchased by the blood of Christ. And you have the grand opportunity to enjoy it each and every day of your life. And secondly, you have the grand opportunity of inviting others to dine with you.